following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. You know, we never really figured out what happened in Vietnam. It caused the country to be divided, and then that divide has just gotten deeper and wider and more toxic. And so if we just look around and say, why are, th- why are things the way they are, which we said to ourselves in 2006, you know, we felt, well, we can trace a lot of this back to Vietnam and to the divisions in the country between classes, between rural and urban, red state and blue state, which we didn't have that terminology then. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, we do in-depth interviews with some of today's most significant business leaders. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Great episode today. We have filmmakers, storytellers, American historians, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Their new blockbuster documentary, Vietnam, comes out on September 17th on PBS. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. I want to start with a quick story. I was lucky enough seven years ago to tag along uh, when you guys are coming out with the 10th inning baseball um, documentary, and it was a ballpark tour. And everyone, I think National Parks has just come out, and you had a meet and greet, and people came up to you and talked about baseball and everything. And I remember someone came up to you, Ken, and said, asked, what is your favorite park? Now, we're sitting here at Camden Yards, and you know, obviously you're saying, talking about Fenway or Wrigley Field. And he's, he said, no, 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 no. I mean Yosemite or I mean you know, Zion. So it's incredible how both of you have to be experts in all the, f- the films that you, you do. Well, you know, they're, they're kind of like children. You know, you, you establish a relationship. They take a long time to incubate. You've got, they, they grow up, you push them out the door, but you're still related. And, and all of these films have meant something to us. And I, my first film came out, I finished it in 1981. And I could recite that film from heart. And so it's not uncommon to have a day where you get stopped by people and it isn't just, hey, I'm looking forward to the Vietnam War, which is coming out soon, but it's they want to talk about the Civil War. They want to talk about baseball or when are you going to do this? And um, that's a wonderful kind of notoriety. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's kind of nutritional. It isn't, you know, people – it's not bold-faced because you haven't done anything or, <laughs> you know, it's the size of your butt. It's because – you people have spent years and years and years, um, and hours and hours actually watching mm-hmm. your 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 work. I think it's you know there's such an intimacy to something that appears on television that you see it in your home and your living room, and it really is as if the film is speaking to you directly. And people I've seen how people respond to Ken mm-hmm. on the street. It's just it is a very direct connection to this material and to these stories, and that's you know a wonderful privilege to be able to have that conversation with people. You mentioned each project is like a child. What's been of all these years, what's been the problem child film? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there have been. I mean, we, we've got the great good fortune to work in public broadcasting, which means that we don't have suits above us checking for length or checking for violence too much or too mm-hmm. little or sex too much or too little. That we actually, every time we finish, 
you know, what you see is our director's cut, and that's really satisfying. Another way of putting it is that if you don't like any of these films, it's all our fault. It isn't, <laughs> we can't blame it on, oh, they wouldn't let me use this writer, they wouldn't let me use this cinematographer or this actor or this whatever it might be, we couldn't afford this piece of music. It's 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 what we've wanted to do. And so I think the the better question is, and it probably relates directly to the Vietnam War, that that the most challenging and and therefore the most satisfying. I remember, though, I could feel that was the same thing in Civil War and baseball and jazz and the national parks mm-hmm. and the Roosevelt's, the war, all the big things always seem to have pushed our abilities at that particular time to the limits. And I think not only permitted those films to be fresh because of the urgency of whether you can pull it off, but permitted us then to grow up to try the next really big shot. And Vietnam is, the Vietnam War is exactly what that is. Even the word problem, we talk a lot about this, that we love problems. Problems are what we live for because making these films is a series of um, questions to ask and problems to solve every day. And the more problems we have, the happier we are. <laughs> it's, we, it's, it's, you know, it's paradoxical, but um, the challenge of trying to figure out how to tell such a complicated story, like Ken is saying, and when we're really pushing ourselves and mm-hmm. sort of what's been great about the Vietnam Project was um, it didn't just push us as filmmakers, but everyone who worked on this project. I think we feel exceeded their capacity and our expectations for themselves and for us to make something that um, sort of exceeded anyone's ability to even imagine what this film would be like when we started. How did the film come about? Because I, I know you guys work on multiple projects. And right. again, I, when I wrote about, when I got to interview you guys, you know, seven years ago, Vietnam was on the list. Like, we right. knew this was happening. Yeah. Um, so how far out did you think of it? And, you know, when when the options for you to do a film were limitless, how did you decide, like, we're doing Vietnam? Well, we, we were finishing our film on World War II that came out in 27. At the end of 26, when we could really see daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, Vietnam had been something we talked about abstractly, intellectually, sort of on a big list of potential projects, but it's then that we committed to doing it. And that means that for a few years, essentially, I'm assembling a, a kind of critical mass of funding. We're beginning to mm-hmm. think about what we're reading, what what it might look like, what the goalposts are of particular episodes, how many episodes, all of which are going to be refined and changed before we do it. And uh, so it's been you know more than a decade of really plowing towards that objective, which we don't recognize who we were when we started it yeah. in terms of not only our preconceptions about about the Vietnam War, but I think, as Lynn was just suggesting, the possibilities of what the film could be. It wasn't just sort of telling Vietnam and, oh, geez, everything I, I know is essentially wrong. It's like, how could we have known that we would be able to grow in this way as filmmakers to express the things we're able to express at the level that we think the expression has taken place with the techniques that are used with the stylistic stuff, with the music, with the effects, with the drama of the stories, the all of the people we got to meet. And, and so it's been a, a wonderful journey. Yeah, we we only started off with like maybe two or three basic ideas of what we were going to do and then how it turned out is exactly what Ken is saying. We basing sort of drawing off of what we did with the Second World War, we wanted to focus on ordinary, quote-unquote, ordinary people. Yeah. Not have historians appear on camera who didn't live through it. And in addition to that, we wanted to hear from people on the other side, the Vietnamese on the losing and winning side, because we felt that Americans 
never think about what happened there and what their experiences were. And we can't understand the war if we just think about it from our own side. And then beyond that, we really had no idea how it would turn out, honestly. <laughs> I mean, we really, truly, you could not, we could not have envisioned the film we ended up with at the beginning. But th- those were kind of the, the beginning principles, at least. What's been the biggest surprise of the film? What did you learn? I mean, you got both experienced on different levels, obviously, the Vietnam War. What did you learn about Everything, everything. (laughs) I mean, you know, I I lived through it. I had a high draft number. I could have been drafted into the United States Army, and uh, it didn't happen. That number was high, and they turned out to have stopped, you know, calling people up from Mm -hmm. that. They were already drawing down from Vietnam. So what I saw as mortal peril didn't happen. But I'd felt I'd followed it for years and years and years, and I knew something about it, and I knew nothing about it. And so it's been surprise after surprise. Sometimes it's big things, you know, mm-hmm. big picture stuff, 30,000 feet. Ho Chi Minh is not as uh, in control for most of the time uh, as we think he is. It's, uh, you know, moments, aspects of a story like the Tonkin Gulf incident, uh, what, ha- what actually happened, and we could add to it. But really, it's the accum- the daily accumulation of complexity about things that you think are not so much black and white, but you figure it's just ABC, and then somebody walks in the room, it's D-E-F-G-H-I-J-K. Wow. And then you, a year later, some consultant says, it's really you know L through Z, too. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this thing that you thought was pretty simple is this complex beast. And we learn to welcome that and invite that and, and sort of go, okay, tell me how to tell it more accurately, even if it is complicated. Because what we do in history is we try to reduce it to some conventional wisdom that makes everybody kind of happy and you can pigeonhole something. If I say the 1920s to you, mm-hmm. you're going to think flappers or you're going to think gangsters or you're going to think some revenue or busting into a big, huge barrel of whiskey. Well, we've been through the 20s in 10 different films and yep. each 20s is different than that. They may have that image in it, but what we wanted to do with the Vietnam War is sort of liberate it from the tyranny of that conventional wisdom. It's funny. My uh, my old Latin professor was talking about history and he said, oh, yeah, us. They'll remember us as computer and cocaine users. That That's going to be the this century in a thousand years kind of thing or BMW drivers. That's mm-hmm. going to be like the, the one image. And, you know, th- this has been a decade in the making, this film. And obviously, I feel these days, American politics changes every 10 days, not 10 years. And what were you thinking when you're putting the finishing touches on this? And once again, there's been massive protests under this political backdrop, protests in the street, nation divided. Is this, in a selfish way, is this a great time for this film to come out? That's funny. It conspired in an interesting way, as films always do. I mean, I could take almost any film that we've made and give you sets of things that resonate in the present that are true to that film. And so when we began this in 2006, we we could have probably just in our own relatively ignorant position draw up 10 things that would go, whoa, that's exactly like today. What's stunning is that a film that we finished before the Iowa caucuses were were held in, in early 2016, we've been, you know, fussing with it and sound mixing and sound editing and doing all that sort of stuff resonates today just startlingly so. But that's what history is about. We never spend a second while we're making the film thinking about that stuff, worrying about that stuff. We just try to master the story. That's our job. But we always know that when we finally pick our heads up and say it's done, it's going to be very much about the moment. You know, we we sort of got into this and 
was just what kind of saying it, it makes sense looking back was that we never really figured out what happened in Vietnam. It caused the country to be divided and then mm-hmm. that divide has just gotten deeper and wider and more toxic. And so um, if we just look around and say, why, is th- why are things the way they are, which we said to ourselves in 2006, we, you know, we felt, well, we can trace a lot of this back to Vietnam mm-hmm. and to the divisions in the country between classes, between rural and urban red state and blue state, which we didn't have that terminology then, you know, a lot of these sort of really um, painful divisions that we feel now really started to sink in. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the motivation to make the film was to go back to ground zero, if you will, and try to sort of rebuild this, this story from the ground up and try to understand it. And, you know, in talking to the people who lived through it, Many of them, they don't like to, they haven't talked about it much. But when you start to open sort of Pandora's box and the feelings that come out, there's a lot of people that live through this era that are conflicted. Mm -hmm. They don't understand exactly why they're so upset. I mean, they know their personal story, but they don't, they haven't been able to take a step back. And that's what the film, uh, we hope, allows us to do. And just a quick break to say this show is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. However you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Kind of talking about that political change from 2006 to now, there's also been a massive uh, technology change in terms of as filmmakers and as researchers. 2006, there weren't iPhones, there weren't Netflix, there wasn't streaming. How has the media... Um, consumption landscape, not the the media media, the consumption landscape changing how you think about films. Um, You know, the good news is, the bad news is everyone's used to these little two-minute YouTube videos, but we're also in the era of binge-watching series, too. So how does that change? How how are people going to watch Vietnam? Are they going to tune in to PBS at this time? Are they going to stream it? Are they going to DVR it? What do you... Does that change anything? Does that change strategy? Not really for us, because, you know, people are always starve for curation and starve for the meaning that comes in long-term things. I mean, I remember the critics, when the Civil War came out, said, this is really terrific, but, you know, no one's going to watch this because we're all just weaned to, you know, MTV kind of (laughs) quick-cutting music video stuff. They said it again at baseball. They said it again at jazz. They said it again in, in the war and the national parks. They didn't say it about the Roosevelts. And the Roosevelts had unbelievable steady state, constant viewership, even rising a little mm-hmm. bit, which is unheard of over the uh, the straight nights of, of the show, the seven straight nights that they broadcast unprecedented kind of uh, coverage. And we were kind of, wow, that's amazing. But they also had lots of downloads and, and lots of streaming and they, you know, the DVD sales were robust. So I think what you have is a big group of people who feel like they need to get that information in in a way, you know, when we began in terms of production-wise, things are just completely different. You know, we shot on film. Yep. We, if we wanted to dissolve, we drew it with a grease pencil. <laughs> we the, six, the the Civil War went to 163 different archives. We got material from 163. I visited all of those 163 places. Go pick up this. Yeah. I set up an easel with um, you know. Um, a metal sheet with magnets and I put two scoop umbrella lights and I by hand filmed the images there. Now that was the real Ken Burns. If you're, if you're you're made to go to a place, you're just bringing a scanner 
And more often than not, they're sending you a file or you can download from existing websites the images that you have. And it's very, very rare that you're actually ever shooting an archive in place anymore, mm-hmm. which takes uh, you know some of the human dimension out of it. But what you're saving and the exponential increase in the number of places that you can now visit – um, virtually is great. Now everything's digital. You know, you want to, you go to an editor back when we're working on baseball or jazz and say, I want you to do something. You say, well, that's going to take him two hours or two days. Well, now that two hour question is two minutes wow. and that two day <laughs> thing is now two hours. And that has its own problems. You know, there's yeah. a tyranny of choice just yep. as there's a tyranny of no choice. And there's something good about having a there, there, there's nothing there's no there there in, in a digital file. You can't hold it. You can't pick it up and say, I'm going to thread up uh, episode one, real one of the picture and a, a few soundtracks. And after dinner, take a look at the film you're making. It's just, it's a different sort of animal, but you can see those dissolves. You can change the length of it in two seconds. You can do what used to be hugely expensive optical printing to slow mm-hmm. something down or to uh, freeze frame something or speed something up. You can do it in, in program. And see it right then and there, and it's done. So we've 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 seen this incredible revolution. We've benefited from it entirely. We're not unmindful of the way in which it is um, dangerous. That there are some mm-hmm. negative aspects. Yeah. That everybody now their only job is at a keyboard, right? Uh, nobody's cutting something or p- t- uh, splicing it. But we tended to then say, okay. We still, it's the same thing. We want to maintain our process with the same rigor and the same sort of scholarship and the same sort of dedication. We haven't saved any time in the amount of time it takes to do a film. I was going to say, it doesn't cut down. No, no, no. Just too much, did, did too much computers choice. cut down the no- amount of paper you use? No. Yeah. I mean, for some people. Yes. Young. Depends on what you're. you're yeah, uh, no, but I, I mean, we. I never felt that was the case for me and it may mm-hmm. just be old fashioned stuff was printed out and, and we still do that and we still like to hold pieces of paper in our hand and mark and them books, up with pencils or magazines. Pen. Does, uh, has it helped the cost? No, no, no. And that was a big lie, you know, and, and people still say you're still shooting film. It's so expensive. And I go, Oh yeah, prove it. But I'm saying has the, in terms of you don't have to drive to 160 archives or libraries. I mean, has the production of the mo- the films cut down a little bit because you're not physically moving or physically driving no. or requesting? No. Um, it just allows us to do more, the sort of quantity of material we can pull in. So um, yeah, maybe it's saved on travel. That's possible. But yeah. we've spent it on other things. So, you know, it's... it's um, Parties. Yeah, parties, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, for a project like this... It would have been pretty hard to do the way we did it. We could have done it. It would have been different. Of course, it's different. If we would have done it five years ago, it would be different. If we do it five mm-hmm. years from now, it would be different. But the access to archives around the world and not having to physically go there, you know, being able to go open up a computer and say, hmm, I wonder if there's anything in the Bibliothèque Nationale about the French War in Indochina. And you sort of Google around or, you know, you search around and we came across a photograph that was misidentified. It said, this is Win I Kwok, misspelled. That was a <laughs> photograph of Ho Chi Minh from 1919, wow. a young man that had, it was, no one knew it was there because it wasn't labeled properly. And so, you know, yes, we might've found that if we'd gone to the Bibliothèque Nationale, but who knows? And just being able to kind of insert yourself into these archives around the world because things are online is incredible. On the other hand, you're, our, not, you're not, you're, you're missing going there and right. finishing shooting what you're looking for yeah. and then turning to the curator and saying, what else you got? What's, right. what, what are the things that nobody ever asks you for? And mm-hmm. can, 
that thing on your wall, the the, the, the frame thing above your desk, that is right. gorgeous. Can we film that too? And that used to always happen at every archive we mm-hmm. went to. And we did luckily have that experience on this project a couple of times, not Ken or me doing this, but one of our producers went, several of our producers went to the archives around the world, or at least around the U.S. And um, in one case, um, one of our producers went to um, Associated Press looking for a photograph mm-hmm. that was elusive. And the man who's who uh, is in the photograph, said he would only be interviewed if we could find this picture of him that had appeared in a magazine in 1965. <laughs> and he was quite adamant that if you can find this picture, I'll do an interview for you. And so she had asked the Associated Press if they had the picture, and they said no. And then she had gone there again, and they said no. And then she had asked, could I go in the back, like Ken was saying, and she mm-hmm. looked, and they, she went through every filing cabinet, and she found the picture. What was the picture of? It's a photograph of a man named Phil Brady. He was a Marine lieutenant in Vietnam in 1964. He was assigned to a South Vietnamese a marine unit, and they were in a major battle at the time. That's not so familiar to us Americans. It's very important in the history of the war. If you're Vietnamese, the battle is called Binh Gia, and it was a decisive battle in which um, the Viet Cong really faced the South Vietnamese uh, army and dealt them a decisive uh, defeat. And um, he was there. And the, there's a, several photographs were taken of him, and he had seen them, but he had lost the copy he had. Mm-hmm. And she found not just the picture he remembered, but two other pictures that wow. had never been published. And he did give us the interview, and he also introduced us to a South Vietnamese counterpart. Yeah, so every once in a while, and that's the you know IRL in real life, yes. going to the place and doing the thing that Ken is saying. It's, it's rare now, but um, when we have done it, great things have happened. How do you choose? I mean, I heard there's some disgusting stat that for every uh, you know 22 minutes of junk... Uh, Real Housewives or something, or Jersey Shore or something. There's like a thousand. There's like a thousand hours to make that that twenty minutes. You have now the entire Vietnam War and archives on multiple nations, not just. How do you kind of sift and how do you choose? Like this is the opening shot, or I'm doing this, this interview. Is, this is why it takes ten years. This is our job. You know, our you know you tend to think of filmmaking as additive, building something, and it is, but it's mostly subtractive. You collect thousands of hours of footage and tens of thousands Mm -hmm. of photographs and hundreds of hours of interview transcripts and all this other stuff, writing and rewriting. And then you begin to try to shape a narrative, usually without pictures, often, Mm -hmm. particularly in this case, a couple times passes through just listening to it as a kind of radio play punctuated by uh, chopped up talking heads. And then you begin to work with that. Once you begin to sort of sense at least the shape of this thing and the arc of it, uh, it doesn't mean you can't add something, can't take something out, you can't change it all around, reverse it, flip it, add a new interview to it. But And, and we always want to remain corrigible and open to new things to the end, never stop researching, never stop writing. You then begin to add these pictures, and then the film starts speaking to you almost right away. The first two pictures you add, and, and maybe that opening shot, which you're asking about, changes a lot. Mm-hmm. And in our case, it has changed an awful lot. And finally, you find something, and it's beginning to work, and, and then you work on other places, and you come back, you go, that doesn't work the way it used to for me now and and what do you do and you try to fix it with different pictures or you suddenly go wait you know what this this thing that we love so much isn't as good for everybody else who's just coming to this cold mm-hmm. this our love of it presupposes some things that we haven't really admitted to ourselves requires knowing a lot more about this moment the and old, this person. The old kill your darlings yes. quote. And well, we didn't kill it. We just needed to move it to yeah. a place where it could be received in the right place and move something up that at first blush hadn't really commended itself to us. But then 
on second or third or 100th look, we thought, you know what, this is a great. And it turns out to be a Marine mm-hmm. who's talking about, you know, how he didn't talk about the war and that he was friends with another couple for 12 years. And the wives were talking and they suddenly discovered they'd both been Marines in Vietnam. No one said a word, he it said. It never came it, up, right? It never came up. And then he said, you know, it was like living in a family with an alcoholic father. Shh, we don't talk about that. And he said, but now I think people are beginning to wonder. The baby boomers are saying, what happened? What happened? And we realized, of course, that's all we wanted to do for the next 17 hours and 50 minutes right. is try to say, what happened? What happened? The scripts, the narration are so tight and poetic. How do you get it like that? Well, we have, we, to, we have to give credit to Jeff Ward. To Jeff Ward is, is, is it. And yeah. it's, it's also not believing that that first draft is written in stone. I mean, yeah. a lot of people have a set research, then mm-hmm. a set writing, and then you go out and shoot and edit based on that. But we go through you know, many, many drafts of the script to sort of refine and uh, make those things tight. They're not tight to begin with. He's a great, great writer. And what makes him an even greater writer is that he's also a great person and Mm -hmm. understands process. And so he's willing to kill the little darlings too. He'll go, wow, that was a great sentence, but it doesn't work in the context of this. And it doesn't sound as good when somebody reads it as it reads on the page. Mm -hmm. And so to have... A relationship with somebody I've been working with Jeff for th- more than 35 years and um, he's unequaled in that ability to not only be a brilliant and incredibly thoughtful writer but to submit to our process which can be really tough on writing he's unusual in so many ways in his gift for words and finding just the right way to craft a sentence um, and being a serious historian in his own right and being very interested in engaging with the best experts and hearing their, you know, the things we didn't know and didn't understand, as Ken was saying, and making it more complicated. But it's also, as Ken was talking, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, he understands better than I think most people who do this kind of writing because he's written books and he's been a magazine editor and he's you know, he can write for any format. Writing for a documentary film is different because we have the pictures. And he's a great visual uh, thinker also. So he knows... That you're gonna, you don't have to say everything. The pictures or the footage are gonna say a lot, and so a lot of what happens is he may write a lot more at the beginning than when we put the pictures in. You don't have to say that there's bamboo thick and it's raining, and you're gonna see it. Yeah. You know, so when he understands that a lot of it is subtracting the description because the pictures will do a lot of that, and then what the the role the words play is different in a film like this, and he's been just genius about that as well. And taking a quick break to say, these days, business can be done from anywhere, in the palm of your hand and at the source, however you move your business forward. With Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Hey everybody, I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. Together we're hosting a new Forbes podcast called Overworld. It's all about video games and the impact they have on art, culture, society, history, all that good stuff. It launches Tuesday, September 19th, and we'll post every Tuesday thereafter. So please subscribe at podcastone.com, the new Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you hear your shows. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day good. Phone charge to 100% good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. I think everyone listening can 
appreciate that each film, each project is a enormous undertaking. Oh, it's huge. And that's only half of it because, um, as I said, we were lucky enough to do a Forbes story on the business yeah. of Ken Burns and, and, and Lynn Novick. And kind of, it's not just making the movie, but you are, each film is a own, you're launching a startup. It's a, that's you right. have to, you're yeah. planning, you're fundraising. Tell me about how you finance these because it's not, like you said, you don't have the suits telling you what to do, but you also don't have the suitcases of cash saying, I want to do this. That's exactly you right. You are fighting for all that stuff. So, so when you begin a project, you've essentially created a new company, an LLC dedicated to the production of that film. And it's a zero-sum game. You're going to decide a budget. You're going to figure it out. Maybe that budget gets amended higher, as it did in this case, as, as the ambitions of the film changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're going to raise that money, and then you're going to drain that 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 bucket that silo and it, at the end it's all going to be zeros and it's going to include salaries uh, for directors and producers and cameramen freelance cameramen it's also going to be secretaries it's going to be film it's going to be videotape it's sound mixing it's the rights for the music uh, all of these different things and you're going to have a fluid and flexible budget that's going on but you go out and raise it so in public broadcasting as you're suggesting this is not investment we have to do it ourselves yeah. public television PBS itself contributes a modest amount, maybe 10% of the budget per average, maybe less, maybe a little bit more, depending on the project, depending on the circumstances. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is a federal agency which the government funds, uh, provides perhaps 20%. Um, And then we get stuff. Sometimes we're able to also tap on the generosity and the resources of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Mm -hmm. Its budgets have been so severely cut over the last 25 years that you know, they were one fully one third of the budget for the um, Civil War series. If we get their largest grant uh, these days, which mm-hmm. we did, we were lucky enough to get for that. It, it represents a thirtieth of our budget uh, for the Vietnam project. Now, a lot of it has to do with the Vietnam project, a lot more than Civil War. But then we're going out, and we've got an. We used to have just two other legs to this funding sources of stool, and that would be, you know, large institutional foundations like the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, the Pew Charitable mm-hmm. Trusts, things like that. Um, and then we have a corporate underwriter, and for the last 12 years, it's been Bank of America who have been mm-hmm. beyond fantastic. They've been enlightened, committed, um, unafraid of the choices we've taken, particularly with the subject like uh, Vietnam. You could imagine uh, the corporate timidity would send them in the opposite direction, exactly the opposite. They, yeah, see, yeah, baseball's a little less controversial usually yeah, than yeah, uh, that. Exactly, and, and, but they wanted us to engage that. They wanted us to deal with that, and they understand too, as they themselves said, that seeing things as we've tried to do in the Vietnam from a variety of perspectives makes people better connected to each other, which is exactly following Mm -hmm. what we believe. So we have had an unbelievable relationship for the last 12 years with them as a sole corporate underwriter, and they've just signed up for the next decade, and that's super exciting for us to have happen. But after the 08 meltdown, we found that these three sources, governmental, uh, big foundations, and corporations, were still not enough to do it. Hmm. They all contracted a little bit. And so we created a nonprofit organization called the Better Angels Society after Lincoln's first inaugural when he's appealing to the better angels of our Mm -hmm. society. And we've raised money from individuals of wealth and small private family foundations that have helped to supplement that in such a wonderful way. And so now 
our three-legged stool is a, a much more stable four-legged one. And um, we've even enjoyed the support of people across the political spectrum and across the country. And it's really great when you're doing a film on something as controversial a topic as this, mm -hmm. to have people from the far right and the far left and, most important, the middle contributing to this as well as a well-known corporation that it's sort of unafraid and you can stand up and say, look – you know, we didn't have our thumb on the scale. We didn't have a political agenda. We just want to tell this story. So the, the model is just as simple as that. By the end mm -hmm. of it, when we finish this and deliver our reports to PBS, the bottom line will say zero, 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 zero. In terms of all the fundraising and donations, is that to, for the company to make whatever they want? Or can they, or is it I'm making a film on Vietnam. Vietnam. Oh, okay. yeah. We would start an LLC called yep. the Vietnam Film Project, and that's following the sort of descriptions that we've said. And most of the grants are mm -hmm. are dependent on the certain set of personnel and the treatments that we've done. And so we're, you know, we're not constrained by that, but you know, we are defining mm -hmm. directly what it is. And of course, we want to be able to reflect back to those people, say the better angels that wish to become involved in the Vietnam, that mm -hmm. they know what they're buying into. They're not investing; they're making an in incredibly generous donation. Usually, the better angels uh, supporters are are at seven figures; they're at a million dollars at least, and some of them are four million. Are there for the for the films? Are there some sort of upside in terms of? I know, obviously, there's. I mean, I, there's DVDs, there's downloads, there's books. I think my house in my parents' house is still that three foot long column of baseball and VHS tapes somewhere in a, in, a, in the closet, which is great. Um, does that does that go to PBS? Does it go to you? Does it go to future projects? How does that work? It's pretty complicated and it's unique to each project, so that there are a lot of people who get at that net dollar. Uh, from a distributor uh, before we do. Mm -hmm. And then by the time it comes back to us, we're distributing it among the various people who have the senior uh, production staff because we pay ourselves salaries that are modest in comparison with mm -hmm. the marketplace would pay us. And then the rest sort of goes into development of new projects and those activities of our larger company, Florentine Films, that a specific project couldn't pay for. So we can pay for one third of the bookkeeper uh, out of this budget and the other third from this and another third from mm -hmm. that. Uh, but Every once in a while, you've got something that's just a, a free electron, a loose end, and and that's what we use. And kind of the the, the tail end of all, all these projects are incredible. I think last time we spoke, you told me how many times the Civil War is being played in schools right now. What is what's that that stat? That well, blew my mind. Today is a school day in America, and at one point, PBS was estimating that they thought that twenty five hundred separate classrooms a day every single school day of the year we're playing a part of the Civil War. I think it's a lot less than that, but it's hundreds and hundreds mm -hmm. of them are watching it. So it may just be that 20-minute section on black troops or it might be that you know, half-an-hour thing on the Battle of Shiloh that's being shown. Do you hope Vietnam has the same sort of reach? One of our funders actually um, was so committed to the possibilities for education with this series that they've given us a grant to give a copy of the film to every high school in America. And we're creating educational materials for teachers, working with teachers to develop materials that they will actually use. One of the big challenges is that, you know, 
most high school students don't get to Vietnam, and if they do, it's pretty cursory because mm-hmm. it's at the end of the school year. It's controversial. It's complicated. And so, you know, by Come that on, time... It's like three pages in a textbook. You know? it, that's or, right. Or a caption of a photograph. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. So, you know, we have, we're thinking, we're trying to be very thoughtful about what materials teachers will use and how it will be most useful to them. And there's, we have some really interesting plans about that. Some are, you know, to come in the spring when American history gets to Vietnam in the late 20th century. But we're also talking to English teachers because um, literature of Vietnam is really powerful and is a great way to get into the questions that the film raises. And so we're going to be presenting at the National Council of English Teachers Conference this year. And um, we're working with middle school teachers because they have a lot more flexibility and they can do thematic projects and talk about patriotism and citizenship and, you know, um, sort of leadership and big questions the film raises about. Dissent. Dissent, exactly. You know, so there's many different ways to get this material into the classroom. And the good news is um, Ken and I were both at this event called National History Day this year and the history teachers that are there are extremely excited about this because it offers them an opportunity to tackle what they know is very, very important. The really good news of this is that you've got a curriculum, you've got American history, so maybe you don't get to it, as Lynn is saying, because you know you get up to World War II mm-hmm. and that's all you can do, or maybe it's too controversial, so it is just a sort of a, a nod to it. But a big film like this actually sets a pick and permits them now to incorporate them into that. And if we give them enough materials, then they can really go to town with it. So, uh, you know, the Civil War wasn't as taught as widely and as in great detail. Usually it was causes and effects, but yeah. now... That's how I studied. Teach- I never studied the war at all. Yeah, nobody no. skipped yeah. over but, it. But now... Yeah, what, uh, like what proclamations is created and that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's and it. And that's it, yeah. you know. And then now, though, p- kids are learning about the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, I, you know, people come up to me all the time and say, you know, I'm a middle school English teacher because I was in high school and we... We were taught the Civil War and, and in the middle of the Battle of Gettysburg. And I go, wait, they taught you the Battle of Gettysburg? And they uh-huh. go, yeah, oh, yeah, we did wow. three days on the Battle of Gettysburg, each day of the war. And you went, what? This is fantastic. So in some ways, we can actually drive an educational agenda unintentionally. We we don't want to tell people what to do. We're filmmakers. We, right. we just want to make a good film that a general audience does. But we know there's a possibility for educational stuff. So we do engage teachers and curriculum designers and ask them, how do you use this if you use it? When do you use it? What age do you use it? What time in the school year do you use it? And mm-hmm. what would you like from us to help you tell the story? And inevitably, we give them what they want, and then their own ability to teach this thing expands and expands and expands to fit the available material that we have. Well, yeah, I think it'll be a few years before we see the full effect mm-hmm. because it, they have to absorb it and they have to figure out what Ken is saying. And we look forward. We get a lot of feedback from teachers over the years, so that'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, these films drive action. I have some numbers here, for, again, from okay. a while a while back, but this is uh-huh. interesting here. Look at the, the paper ruffling okay. there. Oh, it's very authentic. Oh, it's yes. Very authentic, yes. We have here, for example, when National Parks came out, there was a 10 million attendance jump jump across the country. Yeah. So 10 million people basically got off their butts and went to can national I, parks. Can I tell you what that feels like when the secretary of the interior calls you at your office and says, you know, we had had flat and indeed declining attendance through 2009. And in the fall of 2009, after the main travel season, this series came out and that after the next season, 
that they'd seen a bump of at least 10, some said 12 million, and that they were attributing it to almost entirely to that. That meant um, fully one-third of our audience, as you say, got off their butts after seeing this and decided to go to some place. That's so exciting. Did they send you guys Ranger Park Ranger hats? Did they send you pictures, In fact, they did. Right? Uh, they, <laughs> made, they made my writer and co-producer, Dayton Duncan, and I honorary Rangers, which is usually uh, a, an honor accorded to dead presidents. Wow. And then there was also, after um, you mentioned the Civil War, especially Gettysburg, there was a 300% um, attendance jump at you know the Gettysburg battlefield. So I walked across the lawn next to the then location of the uh, sort of visitor's center there with the superintendent just after the series came out or a couple of years after. And as we're walking across, he bent down and picked up a popsicle wrapper and he waved it in front of my face and he goes, it's all your fault. <laughs> and he had a big <laughs> smile on his face. Like he was happy to pick up the... The tin cans and the and the and the wrappers because it meant that he had increased attendance, which meant he had new built-in constituents mm. to protect that park from mm. all of the acquisitive interests that want to build the restaurant and the hotel and the theme park next to it and somehow squeeze these exquisite relics of our um, really important heritage. You know, what, for this film, I mean, we, I, I would not be surprised if more people go to Vietnam because it's, it'll become more of a real tangible place to Americans who have, you know, both a fascination and a fear of what is there. But I also think it will end up, we hope, and we've seen this already, um, the way to touch this history is, you know, if you don't go to Vietnam, which most Americans probably won't, is to talk to people of the generation who experienced mm-hmm. it and to find out their stories. And we've been traveling around. And the other day we were in, I think, Kansas City, and there were some high school kids who had done some um, oral history projects with relatives or neighbors, asking them about their experiences during this period, both soldiers and Vietnamese Americans and people who protested. And so, you know, that's sort of, if there's no call to action, needless to say, but we really do think it will motivate and mm-hmm. drive this intergenerational conversation exponentially beyond what we've been able to do. But let me just add on to what Lynn's saying about increased travel to Vietnam. Yeah. We've been working for many, many years with the high-end tour company Tauk, T-A-U-C-K, mm-hmm. and they're really an extraordinary group. And for almost a decade, we've been designing to of the national parks, of civil rights Mm -hmm. and civil war sites, of jazz places, of things in Chicago, in New York City, in New England. And now we're working with them to design how to, they've already been in Vietnam and have sent, but how to augment that. And they sort of feel that working with us, uh, we're offering a kind of enhanced experience. We feel that they have a process that's very similar to ours. And so we sort of recognize their drive to sort of excellence. So we're very excited uh, to help them design new different kind of tours of Vietnam and then to go on them. Yeah, yes, exactly. That's a good perk. Have you worked, speaking of Vietnam, have you worked with the Vietnamese government or the French government or other countries? This is coming out. They also had a Vietnam. The war was a very big part of their histories. Has that outreach happened? Well, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you. Oh, I'm, well, first, just in terms of the um, transmission of the film. It will be shown in France starting the same week that's filmed here and mm-hmm. also in Germany and actually in almost 50 countries at this point. We've created a shorter version for international markets. Are they translated? 
um, they'll be translated into whatever language is the language spoken there. We've but in also, England, they don't have to do that. No. no, they don't. No, no, no. Isn't that cool? That's true. And Australia. Don't forget Australia. Canada. Or New Jersey. We haven't yet been able to see if we've been able to penetrate the New Jersey market. It's very hard. I know a guy. But we've also translated the film into Vietnamese. And so all 18 hours will be streamed on PBS along with the um, English version and Spanish language version. And that will be available in Vietnam um, just free on the Internet on the PBS site. And Vietnam, unlike China and other countries that have similar governments, they have open Internet in Vietnam. So they have a closed society with an open Internet, which is pretty interesting. And our film will be seen there. And um, the Vietnamese government has been very helpful to us in letting us have access to film there, to meet people, to talk to them, to ask them questions. Uh, we had no one monitoring us or telling us what to ask or who to talk to, or no one asked to see our footage afterwards and or to see the film or anything like that. So we've had very, very unusual access in Vietnam. If I was an 18-year-old you know, aspiring filmmaker, documentary maker, storyteller in, in this day and age, what tips would you give me? What, what advice? You know, I, I, I think they'll sound like platitudes because there, if you wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or even a feature filmmaker in Hollywood, I could actually give you the step-by-step kind of career stuff. But most working documentary filmmakers that I know, including Lynn, uh, came at it from entirely unique paths. There's no career arc for this. Thank God. That's also <laughs> terrifying. Yes. But it then means that you, you sort of fall back to personal things like, you know, are you sure this is what you want to do? A yeah. kind of Socratic know yourself. I've got something to say. I'm driven to say that. And then because it is a set of a million problems, you've got to have a certain amount of perseverance to stick with it. So if this is what you want to do, then it really falls back on you to see if you can, A, do it. I mean, I'm sure there are lots, many more talented filmmakers than me, but I stuck with it. I used to keep on my desk, I don't know where they are, two three-ring binders that were like five inches thick each that were filled with all the rejection letters I'd gotten for my first hour-long film on the Brooklyn Bridge. And it was just a reminder that this isn't just something, you just don't go, well, I think I'll do... Uh, the Brooklyn Bridge or Vietnam. They th- this was years and years of effort in both cases to try to raise the money in order to be able to then try to tell a very very complicated story. And for me, Brooklyn Bridge, when I worked on it as the first film, seemed about as tough a story as you could possibly do. Yeah. And I'll take the bait on, on his uh, on that, Lynn. What was your path to to this crazy world? Yeah, it was a little circuitous. <laughs> Um, and I, I really didn't have a game plan, particularly when I got out of college. I thought I was going to become an environmental lawyer. And then I realized I didn't like um, in politics and I didn't want to go to law school. And then I was kind of at sea and I sort of fell back on interest in photography mm-hmm. and film and history and um, started off as an intern at the PBS station here in New York and um, then sort of had a bunch of freelance jobs just trying to learn enough I actually applied to film school uh, thinking that maybe I would go to film school and they would mm-hmm. teach me. But then I realized they, at that time they didn't teach documentary in film school. It was all narrative. And I didn't really uh, – for whatever reason, and it's hard to put myself back in that 25-year-old mindset, but the idea that you'd have to make up a story and then have someone act it out just seemed impossible to me. And I was mm-hmm. so interested in true stories and their complexity and figuring out what actually happened. 
um, that uh, that's what I wanted to do. And I was so lucky that I, I worked for a while at the PBS station here and then for Bill Moyers for several years off and on. Mm. And then was lucky enough to come on when Ken was finishing up the Civil War series. So I've learned a lot on the job, honestly. I mean, when I first got the job working for Ken, um, I was struggling. I wasn't sure if it was, I was going to be able to succeed in this world. And I gave myself a few years. And I thought if I don't make it to a certain point, I will go to business school. I will go to law school. I will find some other path. Because it is very difficult, um, but it's also extraordinarily yeah, rewarding. You got, you got and if you, and if you can make it in Florentine films, you can make it. <laughs> make there it. you go. <laughs> Were you guys ever tempted at doing a, anything fictional? You know, I I've ne- I wanted to be that. When I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker at age twelve, I um, that meant Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford or Howard Hawks. Mm-hmm. But um, when I went to college at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts in the fall of 71, all my teachers were social documentary still photographers who reminded me, as Lynn was just saying, that what is and what was is as dramatic as anything the human imagination makes up. And so, you know, but I never really left that. If you're, I was going to give you the list of the best films, most of them would not be documentaries yeah. uh, in my pantheon. And so, you know, you sort of flirt with it. But this is I'm, I'm not quitting the day job this is like <laughs> as good as it gets it's as good we reach tens of millions of people every time we make a film we have a complicated story about some aspect of American history that however distant and remote it may seem reflects on today's moment and helps suggest the ways in which we might turn back into our best selves that that we might be able to serve more a kind of common good than the kind of selfish self-interest that is our individual free agency today and all of that makes people think a little bit more about their country think a little bit more about their possibilities and and then initiates a kind of conversation with us which is the best kind of of viewership you know, we're, we're so lucky i think to get to do work that's as difficult and collaborative and ultimately means something to the people who are part of it, let alone it means something to us because these are, like Ken was saying, our children, but the people who've told us their stories to know that in a few days or you know, soon the whole country's going to get to meet some of the remarkable people who've shared their stories with us. Um, it's a good feeling, I have to say. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your story with, with us today. So I want to thank Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Their epic film on Vietnam will be on PBS starting September 17th. Don't miss it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Oh, brother. The reason it's called the NFL, not for long. It's sports-related with Jordan and Luke Rogers. The Chargers football is not going to work in Los Angeles. I got hit by a car on my scooter eight days before our first game of my senior year. I was out there playing. No rib strain's going to keep me out. JoJo, what is the last book that Jordan read? I think he just likes to read Twitter articles. Download new episodes of Sports Related every Friday on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only.
At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.